It's Tuesday, May 10th. Welcome to Real Talk. Jesperson Hicks here with you in just a second. Sandy Garasino, uh, a national columnist with Canada's National Observer. A great piece, and and I love the title of it because it's just going to grab everybody's attention like, the, like I think it probably has in our promo tweet, the tweet we send out every morning from our Real Talk account at Real Talk RJ. Uh, Sandy inviting everybody yesterday when this thing was published to... Uh, Let's have an adult conversation about abortion, an adult conversation about abortion. What does that look like as everybody's talking about it based on this leaked or, or released uh, Supreme Court decision out of the United States, an anticipated decision penned by Justice Samuel Alito? We'll find out from Sandy in just a second. Plus, in about a half hour's time on this show, buckle up for a conversation with the people behind and featured in one of the most powerful films I've ever seen. I watched it last night. I watched it less than 12 hours ago. It's still just banging around in my brain. Love in the Time of Fentanyl. It goes this Friday at Northwest Fest. That's Canada's longest-running documentary film festival. We'll talk to filmmaker Colin Askey and two of the people featured in this film. It is unbelievable storytelling around the opioid crisis in Canada, in particular, uh, a startup illegal drop-in overdose prevention resource, a site in Vancouver's downtown east side, I don't even know what to say about the film, except you have to see it. We're going to share a bit of it with you today and, again, talk about some of the issues that have led to the situation right now that is claiming the lives. Uh, it's a health crisis, a full-blown health crisis of hundreds of people across Canada every single month, thousands of people every year. Over the past 25 years, a statistic in the film grabbed me and wouldn't let go last night. Over the past 25 years, a million people have died from overdose or drug poisoning in North America, a million people in the last 25 years. Meantime, in the last 35 years at these supervised consumption services like Insight in downtown Vancouver, and we'll talk about that, not a single person has died from overdose. So not a single death in 35 years under supervision and care, a million deaths over the last 25 years in North America outside of those services sends a pretty clear message doesn't it we'll look for your thoughts on that plus we'll review the unscientific unofficial twitter poll from yesterday on privacy and tracking and cell phones an interesting development when we put that question out it was a little bit more inflammatory than i thought it might be which is always an interesting observation to make we'll get into all that before the end of the show today the leading edge coming up presented by leading edge physio because it's a tuesday because it's a weekday this show is presented by our friends at bitcoin wealth bitcoin is seen to drop across the board in crypto the nasdaq is down tech stocks are down people are going are these all correlated is this all related what does this do to some of the political assertions around cryptocurrency if you have questions like this and you probably do i recommend you take them to the staff like benny at the bitcoin well you can find them bitcoin well that is under the sponsors tab on our website ryanjesperson.com real talk starts right now Here's Ryan Jesperson. It was just a few days ago that uh, the nominees were announced for Canada's Digital Publishing Awards. 
And one of those nominees is our next guest. So I look forward to congratulating her. I'm sure that several people already have, but uh, it's always great to recognize the good work that journalists and columnists are doing in furthering conversations around important issues uh, across Canada. Sandy Garasino is a, a, a former trial lawyer, and you've probably read her work in Canada's National Observer. She's been on the show several times uh, talking about different issues that resonate with her. But it was it was this one yesterday, this column that caught our eye. Uh, let's have an adult conversation about abortion. You can read it yourself at nationalobserver.com. The author of that piece, an award nominee, Sandy Garasino joining us from the West Coast, making it an early morning. We sure appreciate it. Thanks for getting up for us, Sandy. And it's nice to see your face again. I think we've got you on connection, mute, Sandy. Because I'm not go. getting great connection here. You're not getting great connection? Is it all right? Yeah, it's, it's coming through okay. It's decent. And uh, we think it'll sort itself out. But you let me know. And if not, uh, we can make the necessary adjustments. Congratulations on your uh, nomination. Uh, I hate to do this to you, but I'm just wondering if I should move to a different spot in the house or something, because yeah. this is like, for some reason, I'm not getting good. No problem, Sandy. Take five and uh, come back and join us when you can. Sandy Garasino, columnist for the National Observer. Uh, we'll get that figured out. Her piece, Let's Have an Adult Conversation About Abortion. I'll read a little bit from the piece, and, and I think that it, it's it's something, you know, it's a conversation you want to be able to have, although this is one that, for obvious reasons, is a supercharged issue. It's an uncomfortable issue for a lot of people to talk about. As a matter of fact, just even in, in, in the realm of the orbit of talk shows, you don't see a lot of talk shows talking about abortion all the time. But what's happening in the United States, of course, has people talking about access to abortion in Canada and other countries, whether or not uh, the United States, uh, a decision from the Supreme Court could impact the politics or the public discussion or access to abortion in Canada. As a matter of fact, we, in partnership with our official research and strategy team at Y Station, have made that the subject of our question of the week this week. So if you go to RyanJesperson.com and if you click on Connect, under question of the week, you'll find it posed there. With the draft decision leaked last week, it seems clear that the United States Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision, a 1973 decision, by the way, on reproductive rights in the United States. We want to hear your thoughts on what impact this decision will have in Canada, the role of men in conversations and policymaking about reproductive rights, and what this means for politics, both here at home and across the border. That's our official question of the week presented by Y Station. Of course, we'll leave it open through till Sunday night. Uh, Sunday afternoon, I think about three o'clock mountain is where we cap it. 5 p.m. Eastern. We need to give their team enough time to put these reports together and then we'll bring you the results of that early next week. These conversations will continue, of course, uh, as people are paying very close attention to what's happening in the U.S. You've probably noticed that there are a lot of other initiatives going on as well in relation to this. Some might say that some lawmakers or some special interest or lobby groups have become more emboldened. Uh, with this conversation around the Supreme Court, with this revelation, you might call it around the Supreme Court. So there's talk about, you know, for example, some uh, folks in Congress or even senators talking about, should we limit access to the morning after pill? Should we make it illegal? You know, should we make it a felony to procure or attempt to procure the morning after pill? Plan B, in some states that have death penalties, there's talk about that. And people are going, what's even happening right now? There's some talk in some of the southern states about looking to limit birth control, access to birth control to married couples. I mean, people are going, this is absolutely outrageous right now. It feels like something that would be in the onion, but it is 
happening right now. And so this is why we want to have these conversations. Take a look at our live chat. And Randy says, uh, talk about abortion, says it's only uncomfortable for social conservatives and the religious right, Jespo. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I've just always personally been wired to kind of feel like it's really none of my business to sort of feel like it's a conversation that a lot of people should just kind of stay out of. But Sandy Garasino, who joins us now live, actually kind of argues the opposite. As a matter of fact, in just shy of just outside the lead of her column at nationalobserver.com, she writes, while women don't need men telling them what to do with their own bodies, it would certainly help if the millions of guys who've personally benefited from their freedom would say so. Sandy joining us live this morning, and it looks like through a crystal clear connection, though I shouldn't jinx us. Thanks for making time for us. Good morning to you, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on, Ryan. Yes. Sorry about this. Hey, don't, don't sweat it. It's a, it's a way better move to, to adjust early and get a rock solid connection so we can have an uninterrupted conversation. You approach this from a perspective in your column, Sandy, you want to have an adult conversation about abortion. Where has that been lacking in your estimation in past? How do we make it an adult conversation? Well, I think there's been so much shame that's been, um, uh, this has just been so drenched in shame and women not wanting to come forward and say what's really going on in their lives and men too. I mean, every pregnancy involves a man and, but we'd hear nothing from the men who are benefiting from this very standard, ordinary procedure, very common procedure. And women are not talking about it very much because I think the, the Christian right uh, and maybe society in general has been um, it's just so reluctant. We're squeamish about sex at all. And then when the, when the Christian right and its disapproval of, of ordinary adult human sexuality that we all know from our own personal experience. Look, most pregnancies, unplanned pregnancies, are not the result of rape or incest. They're not violent. They're people who fucked up. They made mistakes. Something happened. Something happened unplanned. Maybe it was a Saturday night. Maybe something um, uh, just went went wrong and an accident happened. I mean, women are fertile for much of their lives and men are fertile all the time. And and things happen. We, we have to work hard to prevent pregnancy from happening. Um, but ordinary adults uh, engage in healthy, happy sexuality, and sometimes they have accidents. And as a result, um, unplanned pregnancies are dealt with all the time, and they are dealt with much in the same way as I think that we deal with um, medically assisted deaths sometimes, where you know physicians will tell you that, that the reality is not what people's perception is. There's a lot more that happens. So my perspective is, can we just get rid of the shame hmm. and stop pretending that we all are ha only having sex within marriage and only doing it with the people we should do it with and, and all that and just really talk about it normally? Because this is an extremely common thing that happens to women and it's extremely common for them to terminate an unplanned pregnancy far more common than the average person I think realizes. I, I, it's kind of funny as you were relocating in, in your place and, and uh, you know, I was commenting and reading what I'm seeing on our live chat, Sandy, and kind of teeing up what we're going to talk about. 
and, and I just say, I go, you know, this is kind of a, a controversial issue. It's a hot button issue. It can be an emotional issue. It can be an uncomfortable issue. And, and right away on the live chat, some viewers, I, I happen to see a comment from Randy. I'm sure there were others, too, said it's not uncomfortable for everybody. This is it's uncomfortable for social conservatives or for the religious right. And I, and I kind of went, OK, yeah, sure. Fair enough. But and, and maybe that's just sort of the, the context that I see it through. Maybe that was part of my experience. It's always felt like an extremely serious issue where it's, you're, you're, you're talking about the sanctity of life and you're talking about people's dis- right and all this kind of stuff. And then now, even especially over the past couple of weeks um, with, with this story out of the United States, where I'm noticing that this is like mainstream conversation that virtually everybody seems to be talking about. And it feels a little bit unusual. Do, do you get the same sense? I, I do. And I hope that we really just kind of open this up and quit pretending that this is a that this is this terrible terrible thing. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not great. Nobody likes it. Almost all abortions um, happen to young women uh, under thirty. Almost all of them, because people get their acts together and they kind of work things out, and then they don't have accidents anymore. Maybe they're not partying so much on Saturday night. But we have to. Can we please prit? Quit pretending that this is like, like we, there's this attitude that we're supposed to take it as this terrible, terrible thing. All of this is cloaked in drama. And the only reason that we, you know, we should be thinking about this is because of rape and incest. No, this is just regular human life. And this is how adults live. This is the lived reality. Uh, just to make my point a little bit further, Ryan, um, about one woman in four in the United States will have um, an abortion by the time she uh, reaches menopause. That's twice the rate of breast cancer among all women for their whole lives. This is, abortion is more common than knee replacement surgery. This is the reality. This is what we're, this is what we're doing in life. This is how people are living. And you could say, well, this is a terrible, terrible thing, but this is the reality that people have been living and women have been living this reality for, for millennia. This is what we do. You already know what critics that see or hear this interview even will say, or critics of yours that read your column will say, Garasino's trying to normalize abortion. Why do you think that it's important or integral to have this conversation? Why is it important to have the adult conversation about this? This is not me normalizing it. This is a, acknowledging the reality of lived experience for ordinary adults everywhere and not only that this would be a disaster an actual economic disaster it would be really great to see an analysis of the economic impact of all of these uh, pregnancies going to term about 900,000 to a million depending on the year women in the United States exercise their freedom and terminate a pregnancy that's almost a million a year annually so now, let's just think about that. These are almost all young people. So, and we, it costs about $250,000 to raise a child, just to 17 in the United States, not including education. So about a million 
so a, a million times or 900,000 times 250,000, you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars that are being foisted, would be foisted on the shoulders of young people that can barely afford their rent. And this is going to be foisted on their shoulders for the rest of their lives, or they're going to put these kids up for adoption. Well, how many kids get adopted every year? About 135,000. So there's six times as many abortions as there are adoptions. You're going to, if you, if this whole idea, oh, well, people can adopt. Well, no, they're not going to adopt in those numbers. And most of the children, most are, most of the um, uh, children that are the result of these pregnancies are not you know, your nice blonde haired kids, so-called, that the, that the adoption families are generally seeking. This is, this is the ordinary lived life of Americans. And these kids are not going to get adopted. So you're going to get hungry kids. You're going to get kids on the street or your child services are going to be completely overwhelmed with these pregnancies or with these, with these children. Um, and we're going to be pushing women back into the Stone Age. We know that childcare is, um, uh, is an economic driver. We know that it drives prosperity, it drives incomes up, it helps the economy. Now imagine reverse. Now imagine taking women out of the workforce that would otherwise be in the workforce or out of education that would otherwise be advancing their skills. This would be an economic disaster of staggering proportion to take these rights away from, from everybody. Nothing that you're saying is wrong. I mean, statistically, you're saying that, you know, there, there'd be 900,000 pregnancies terminated is that what you said 900,000 in the U.S. every uh, yeah. year yeah. That, that number is staggering and I can see that number being presented in different ways obviously yeah. uh, with regards right. to messaging uh, for some people that's that's it's also it's also gone down in recent years but not because of uh, less access to abortion but because of more contraception and because younger people are having um, more control of their sex lives. Yeah. And then well, we, I was mentioning this as, as uh, you know, just before you and I got started. Now, this stuff is not law and these are just ruminations. But we're seeing some, I think, some emboldened lawmakers in, in the United States, in particular in the Bible Belt in the southern U.S., starting to talk about things like outlawing Plan B outlawing the morning after pill limiting access to birth control it just sounds to me in in combination uh, with what the supreme court appears to be set to rule on it, it it it's it's a disaster uh waiting to happen and that's the part that i think it's safe to say millions of people are having a very difficult time wrapping their mind around well well yeah i mean this is going to affect everybody's life um, and it's going to affect men's lives, too. You know, and this is one of the things that, you know, we've kind of conditioned men to stay out of this conversation. What we really want is for them not to tell women what to do. But the, but the reality is that this benefits millions and millions of men. It benefits their lives. I mean, for as much as there's the odd Yahoo out there saying, you know, you're going to have my baby and all that kind of stuff. How many men are actually relieved or even more asking, pressing, pressuring 
for their girlfriend to have or their partner to have um, a t- to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. Sandy, when you talk about the role that that men should play, we have an we do a question of the week every week. People can go to ryanjesperson.com, connect, and then they answer the question of the week. And, and one of the angles on that question um, put together by Y Station, our research and strategy firm, is the role that men should play in the conversation or the, or, or in lawmaking or what have you. And, and typically I I felt like the quick answer, the succinct answer is get out of the way. Or just shut up. <laughs> if it's not your body, just get out of the way. But you argue that uh, it would help if the millions of guys who've personally benefited from the freedom would say so. And I would imagine you wouldn't just limit it to men that have had, by association, a personal connection to this either. What role do you see men playing in the conversation? Well, speak up about the damage that this is going to cause. The damage that this is, that, that removing this freedom from um, a woman's life and from everybody's life. Because, you know, the... Uh, in theory, this is a burden, that, an economic burden that could get foisted on, on men, an unwanted burden. I mean, imagine somebody, you know, registering a $250,000 uh, charge on you for the rest of your, for, for your, the next 20 years to raise a kid. Um, you know, that's theoretically possible. These are, these have, these affect everybody. Um, and so I think it's, like I say, I don't think that men or anybody, anybody, no matter what your gender is, should be telling another telling a woman what she should do with her own body. That's her business, her business entirely. But if you benefited from it, if if your if your son got somebody pregnant, and you're terribly relieved that that got terminated, say so. You know, let's speak up and let's quit with shaming people and pretending that life is different from what it really is like. Yeah, it, there, there still is that there, there are those moments and, it, and it's becoming sort of more and more, quote unquote, normal or more and more of a regular occurrence um, to hear someone step in front of a microphone or in front of a group of people say, I had an abortion. And oftentimes they'll talk about the year or the circumstance or maybe they won't. But, but they, that disclosure, I think, goes a long way in, in providing context for those conversations. But you didn't typically see that as much anymore. And, and you do see that conversation evolving. And you do see the conversation changing when it comes to the impact that you think this story out of the U.S. and this momentum out of the U.S. could have in Canada. Um, a lot of people are saying, well, this is fear mongering. Um, Alberta's premier the other day didn't want to comment on it. He said, I'm not going to comment on a hypothetical decision that may be made by a foreign court in another land and tried to create as much distance as he could. Did Jason Kenny from answering that question? Do you foresee uh, a tangible impact in Canada? I mean, the stories are a little bit different, right? Here, it's not so much about the legislation. Here, it's more about access to abortion. I see the conversations take a different tone. But where do you see this going? Didn't Jason Kenney recently go to the United States to try and get the Americans to pressure Canada and, and to get that Keystone pipeline going and, and you know, pressure Canadians to get behind the Keystone pipeline? Is, is, I, I feel like there's something that happened there. But anyway, um, I mean, because of the jurisdiction, because it's not just the legality and the decriminalization of abortion, but it's also about access to abortion services. And that is a provincial jurisdiction issue. So it absolutely affects, and it is um, a matter for premiers to get engaged in. Women need to have this service available to them. And by the way, 40% of terminations are medica- medical or 
our medication there you just take a, a prescription and that's and that's how um, almost all the early term abortions are um, take place but the um, we all know that whatever happens in the United States and especially from the Christian right does work its way into Canadian uh, policy and I believe that Jason Kenney was an anti-abortion activist in the United States when he was there as a student in San Francisco um, so I, I think that we all have to be aware that absolutely the anti-abortion forces the campaign life in Canada is would be thrilled and delighted for um, conservative politicians um, to start uh, being supportive but we also have to remember every one of those Supreme Court justices lied about their intention under oath in the in their confirmation hearing so I don't trust anybody who's um, um, on the conservative uh, side of things, generally speaking, to be fully to fully tell the truth about what their intentions are if the if the uh, political winds change. You know, an awful lot of the uh, GOP candidates right now are are dancing to the um, to the anti-abortion tune because that's the reality of the GOP. You have to be anti-abortion or you cannot you have no political future. So a lot of them who used to be for um, freedom of choice for women and, and reproductive freedom are, are not now. You can read Sandy Garasino's piece, Let's Have an Adult Conversation About Abortion, in Canada's National Observer at nationalobserver.com. Hey, congratulations on your nomination for a digital publishing award. That's a big deal. Thanks so, thanks so much. I don't know how much I pay attention to these things, but everybody tells me it's a big deal. So yeah. that's <laughs> well, hey, it's, it's always nice to see your name on the list, Sandy, and it's always nice to have you here on the show. We appreciate you waking up early for us on the West Coast. Thanks so much. You got it. Uh, Sandy Garcino, former trial lawyer and, of course, uh, uh, a well-read columnist, uh, an award-nominated columnist for Canada's National Observer. We should mention that Max Fawcett, uh, who you hear on this show as well from time to time, also recognized for his work in political commentary. So congratulations to both Sandy and Max. Again, our Real Talk uh, Get Real, we call it, our question of the week, asks for your take on this story. And uh, we look forward to hearing from so many of you. You do have an opportunity to, to rip through in about one minute. Answer that question at RyanJesperson.com under the connect link. Uh, but if you want, you can take a bit more time. We leave some areas where we typically ask you anything else. And then you can just fill in the blanks and you can unload on, on what it is that you've been wanting to say or what you'd like to see us put in front of real talkers. Don't forget, while we review the results of the question of the week every week, our Patreon supporters, and you can learn more about that on our website, also receive the full top line report, which is typically like 15 to 20 pages of all that data, that curated data, including your comments, some really neat uh, and fascinating statistical insights into where the audience is at. And that's just one of the ways that we say thank you to our Patreon supporters uh, for covering us. And of course, for making us uh, putting us in a position where we can continue to work to bring you the real talk coming up in uh, just under 10 minutes, maybe under five, depending on how quickly we can line this up. There's always so much going on behind the scenes. We're going to talk to the team behind uh, an unbelievably powerful film 
that'll be debuting tonight, as a matter of fact, at the Doxa Festival. It's a world premiere tonight. And then on Friday, it screens in person in our home city of Edmonton at the Metro Cinema at the Garneau. That's a part of the amazing lineup at Northwest Fest. That's coming up in just a bit. Before we get there, I want to remind you that Kubi Energy is hiring right now. That's what they want to make sure everybody knows. If you're a skilled worker, if you're a tradesperson, if you have your ticket, if you're an electrician in particular, they're currently hiring. As a matter of fact, they're almost always hiring. That's how much the demand is growing with this company that's been covering solar installations big and small across Western Canada for about a decade now. Not a big, boring corporation where you're just a cog in the machine. You, as a team member at Kubi, make a direct impact to the company and in a bigger picture to clean energy development in Canada. So you work for an awesome company. Uh, they offer you a tool and boot allowance. There's an employee referral program. So if you know other great potential staffers, you could benefit from that. So could they. Even a Bitcoin investment savings plan. Different kinds of things that are attracting the best installers, salespeople, lead structural engineers, and others to Kubi through kubienergy.ca slash careers. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider. I always like to mention these two companies together because Park Power and Kubi have collaborated on something. Park's got a great solar rebate buyback program where they're going to pay you way more per kilowatt hour than the other big power providers. So when your system is churning along, uh, creating or what do I say, harvesting more energy than you need to use, you can sell it back. It goes on your account and it saves you money even through the winter months. It's just one of the reasons why Park Power should be your go-to for electricity, natural gas, and internet across the province of Alberta. You can compare rates, get into their frequently asked questions, and most importantly, sign up at parkpower.ca. The promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. Eden Landscaping is bringing outdoor spaces to life. A custom landscape builder, more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton, and across the greater Edmonton region. If you go to landscapeedmonton.ca, you click on services. This is a great way to get a sense of exactly what they do. So maybe in your world, it's edible garden boxes that you're looking at doing. Everybody's doing though now, those now. Hey, Johnny, everybody's... A- I'm seeing people, they, they got their tomatoes going in already. They're all the rage. Some people are wondering, there was like this tiny little, tiny little dusting of snow in our neck of the woods oh, last man. night. What does that mean for those of you that are already getting your veggies in? They do excavation, leveling ground, removing greenery, whatever you need. Eden Landscaping's got you covered at landscapeedmonton.ca. And of course, we want to mention Friesen Brothers. Number one, most importantly, the first of the month has to be circled on your calendar. If you live anywhere near a Friesen Brothers, there's 16 of them across Alberta. On the first of every month, 75 bucks or more in grocery purchases earns you 15% off the whole tab, which is great. Plus, they've got you covered for grilling season. All the Alberta protein you need, including a whole bunch of non-meat options, plant-based options at Friesen.com. Yesterday, we told you about a story that uh, was reported in the National Post, and uh, people were talking about the the federal government through the the Public Health Agency of Canada trying to get information 
uh, endeavoring to make evidence-based decisions. And so they wanted information on Canadians' habits. You know, were more people or fewer people, we already know the answer to that, were more people or fewer people going to the liquor store during the pandemic shutdown? You know, so what impact was it having on Canadians' behavior or health-related activities? Were people gathering uh, in person, in groups, or were people more inclined to stay home and keep to themselves? How many people were going to the pharmacies? What did demand look like there? Perhaps some insight into where people were going to get masks or to get other PPE or what have you. Uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada, through procuring this data collected by a, a third party group uh, called Blue Dot, uh, of course, this was put in front of the Ethics Committee by Parliamentary Secretary Adam Vancouver, and we have a, uh, a request in with him, and we hope to speak with him. It got people talking about how Canadians traveling to pharmacies, liquor stores, family gatherings tracked via their phones. That's how it worked. Now, officials say the data, the data was kept anonymous. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't say John Smith from this address went to this pharmacy at this time to buy this item, but it would show that perhaps... 44 percent i'm making this up 44 percent more people went to this specific pharmacy or this specific location those numbers up over two weeks ago so anonymized data helped inform public health decisions through the pandemic Uh, we linked to the story in our unofficial unscientific twitter poll yesterday and then we simply asked are you cool with this and we gave you three options yes data is important no i'd feel violated or i'm not sure how i feel and and the numbers johnny kind of held True, True yeah. through the entire poll, like mm-hmm. they established about thirty two hundred people voted in in total thirty two hundred and sixteen just under like a hair under 40 percent said, yeah, I'm cool with it. That is important. Thirty nine point eight percent. Thirty six point nine. Let's call it thirty seven. So let's say 40 percent and then thirty seven. Thirty seven percent say I'm not cool with it. Mm-hmm. I'd feel violated. And then twenty three percent said I'm not sure how I feel. That's where I am. That's where I'm landing. <laughs> yeah. What what I thought was really interesting about this is that the the poll actually ended up coming across as a little bit more inflammatory or controversial or triggering than I thought it would be. I didn't think it did either, but that's kind of what the response was. Yeah. Little, eh? So when we put it together and, and when I put it together yesterday in the morning, right before we went live on the show, Again, the wording, just Canadian traveling to pharmacy, liquor stores, they were tracked via their phones. Officials say it was kept anonymous, helped inform public health decisions. Are you cool with this? Yes, no, or I'm not sure how I feel. But it was really interesting to see a lot of the blowback. People were accusing me of gaslighting. People were accusing me of trying to further a certain narrative, a right-wing narrative, an anti-Trudeau narrative. And I kind of went, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) We're just trying to get a sense of where people are at with this. But the biggest trend in the responses, and I appreciate when you leave a comment on these polls, I hope that you vote too. I hope you vote and leave a comment. Um, But many of you kind of just went, "Eh, it's just kind of part of how it goes now. Mm -hmm. Like whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, if you sign up for these apps or if you haven't turned off your location services or if you've read your terms of service with regards to, you know, the (laughs) cell phone company. I mean, who reads the terms (laughs) of service? But you probably should. uh, Then people would say, well, it shouldn't be any surprise to you. Sure. Right. This information is being collected about you all the time. Uh, The government just procured it. The government just paid for it. The government Mm -hmm. just accessed information that's already being collected. Like Steve said, I don't really have an issue with the website tracking unique visitors. Um, If tracking is truly anonymously aggregated, it's no different. But I am absolutely suspicious that things are not as described. It's probably a fair comment. Barry says we all know data is being collected to try and influence how we spend our money. And I think most people accept that. But should a government body use that information to enact laws that control our movement? 
Lady Bach says, uh, uh, do you use a debit card, a credit card? You know, you're being tracked by non-government sources all the time. You want to remain anonymous? Ditch your cell phone, pay with cash. Oh, and also be mindful of all the cameras out there, plus satellites. Ashley says, I don't like being tracked by the government, but I'm much more concerned that unaccountable private companies do it every day. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Ashley says, at least I can vote against the government. We do have some rights. Facebook and Google can collect and sell data about me with no recourse. Chrissy says, newsflash, credit card company historical data was the precursor to detailing daily traffic. This is old news. My man, DSP, Dan St. Pierre, chiming in, says, who cares? He says, who cares? That one kind of jumped out at me. I was like, Dan, do you really mean who cares? He says, our every move is tracked nowadays, either online by algorithms or offline by the GPS on our mobile devices. And, and Dan's probably not wrong about well, He's not wrong about that. It feels like everybody's moves are tracked everywhere these days. The question is, are you cool with it? That was the question we asked yesterday. Not is it happening? Not is it inevitable? But are you cool with it? Right. Like, keep in mind the options we gave you. Yes, data is important. That acknowledges the importance of data. No, I'd feel violated. We could have gone with I'd feel creeped out or I'm not sure how I feel. So those are the options we gave you. So Dan airs or, or sides with the who cares. Data is important. Teresa says, wait until people find out about Facebook, right? There's a reason they send you ads about gardening right after you thought about gardening. That always weirds me out, Teresa. We were telling a story a while ago about talking about getting a new toaster and then you sign on and you're doing whatever you're doing, a Google search or you're on your Facebook and then these ads for toasters are popping up and you're going, they are listening. Kelly Optress says data has been collected and purchased for years, stores, cell phones, GPS and cars. This is not new nor exclusive. Corporations and government analysts use it for trends. And Jonas says, if you carry a phone that has location services enabled, you've essentially consented to this kind of thing. And that's the, the old idea around the opting in versus opting out. So if you've not turned off location services, you have essentially consented to this kind of thing. <laughs> I thought the numbers were interesting. 40% are cool with it. 37% are not. And 23% don't know how they feel. Do you roll with like you've got your location services on, find my iPhone, like all that kind of stuff? Would you be the Always. easiest man and to track I, in Canada? Yeah, I think we all would be. But um I, uh, <laughs> I I used to be the same kind of person who was like afraid of the government and Big Brother, and now I'm like, I just need to get to freezing bros. <laughs> you know, like I just like you gotta have your Google Maps ready to go. It's inevitable, and like you were saying about reading, uh, you know, your terms of service. I don't think anyone does, and most social media companies now. I mean, they they don't just have access to your information. A lot of them, Instagram. If you read, they legally can take your photos and use them in advertisements. I mean, you're not even aware of it, but if you read closely, Facebook as well can uh, use your information and your data in any way they please. Yeah. I mentioned a conversation. This was a few shows ago that I was having with some people off off air, just a, a candid conversation. And it was people from different generations, right? Uh, you know, a couple of the people in the conversation in their early 30s, a couple of people in their later 40s, early 50s, and, uh, and, and, and the debate around whether or not it's a generational pushback. Right? Is this the sandwich generation you're always talking about? Well, the sandwich, <laughs> like, I'm not yet in the sandwich generation, but at some point, this is, you know, the folks that are caring for their kids and caring for their parents at the same time but in the context of surrendering privacy or surrendering data yeah. or personal information maybe it is that that how do i put it this way 
older people or people, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s and up are a little more concerned about this type of thing where maybe younger people have grown up in a culture of sharing. Yeah. Where, you know, you know, it, it maybe started with things like Squarespace or not Squarespace, Foursquare. What was the one mm-hmm. where you're the mayor of a certain place? Yeah. You're, you're basically telling people, I go to this coffee shop more than anybody else. And, and you would announce you would announce where you're going, where you are, where you'll be. And then Tumblr really took that a step further. Tumblr was really like a blog of your life. And then uh, after that, of course, Facebook, Instagram. And now yeah. I think you're right, though, like certain generations are just more used to it than others and don't care as much. And I think. Uh, yeah, Gen X, Gen Z, obviously millennials. We we're, we're kind of used to it, uh, but those people I think are kind of on the uh, you know in the middle where I am with. Uh, I, I don't feel great about it, but you know it it helps me in my life to use location services. It helps me to use this data, and I think it can be used for good. But you know, it's always can fall into the wrong hands, and it is creepy when you get those ads, eh? Yeah. And Let us like, know what you think about this talk at ryanjesperson.com. If this feels like maybe a trash talk submission for you coming up on Friday, you can get whatever you need off your chest. Send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, in just one minute, we're going to talk to the filmmaker and uh, two of the people featured in one of the most powerful films, not that I've seen this year, one of the most powerful films that I have ever seen. Uh, it makes its world premiere tonight on the West Coast at Doxa, and Friday it goes at Northwest Fest in our home city of Edmonton at the Metro Cinema at the Garneau. Here is a clip from Love in the Time of Fentanyl. We've got our positive for fentanyl on our dipstick. I'm going to let it dry just a little more, but the negative is coming in on the benzo. Two lines, the strip closest to me means negative for benzos. One line on the strip closest to you means positive for fentanyl. Oh, yeah, new people. New people meet me over here. It's important to note that this isn't traditional employment, okay? It's a volunteer position, okay, with a, with a paid honorarium. You know, it's not quick money and it's not lucrative, but it is an opportunity to respond to a crisis in your community, to care for loved ones, and for some people replace a hustle, right, that is often criminalized, like boosting or sex trade or whatever it may be that, that ends up uh, putting people in a negative cycle. Thank you. Uh, all of the staff here are current drug users or former, all right? So they're people with lived experience. Acknowledging that people use, right? We ask that they don't use on their shift um, and use up to a maintenance level. Like if you have to use, you take five minutes and, and get back to work, but let people know around you that you're, you're doing that. Cool? Thanks, everyone. Yeah, see you then. Thank you. That was uh, the voice of Ronnie Gregg uh, that you're hearing there. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you just saw him. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, Ronnie, a longtime frontline harm reduction worker in Vancouver's downtown east side, mainly focused on supervised consumption sites. He's had the opportunity to work, train and consult support with harm reduction organizations in a number of places across Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, primarily at the pioneering supervised consumption sites Insight and the Vancouver Overdose Prevention Site. He started a harm reduction nonprofit called Zero Block Society for Harm Reduction Worker Support. Support the work, support the workers. We're going to get to know Ronnie over these next number of minutes. This film is put together by Colin Askey, a filmmaker who spent the last 10 years or so documenting the transformative impact of humane policy on the lives of people who use drugs. Uh, Colin's recent work includes the film Haven in 2019. That was an award-winning short doc about North America's first 
heroin-assisted treatment program in Vancouver. And we're also joined by Trey Agnew this morning. Uh, Trey is uh, a former heroin worker, uh, a former heroin user, pardon me, and, and thief by trade. Uh, currently the GM of the Overdose Prevention Society, known as Ops. He's now helping others, says Trey, as a means to try and balance his years of accumulated bad karma. He resides in Strathcona beside Vancouver's downtown east side, enjoys punk rock music. So he says dirty people and filth. <laughs> nice. It's, so we've got Trey here as well, but uh, we're just going to do audio only until he figures out his video. Okay, good stuff. Uh, we'll go to Trey in just a second. Let me welcome, uh, with a warm welcome, the three of you. Uh, Ronnie, you're, you're, you're one of the featured uh, people in this documentary. It takes you through, I guess, what might be you know two or three weeks or perhaps a couple of months in the life of somebody working in the downtown east side in harm reduction. From the first second of this film, I was absolutely absolutely captivated as a viewer trying to understand this health crisis in Canada for you. This is just everyday life. I mean, you know, this is going to impact people that are unfamiliar with the downtown East side or this crisis in a big way, but this has been your wheelhouse for years. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you both and a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I'm really, as you said, it is illuminating um, the work that is done, that has been done for a number of years. And and for that, I'm grateful. Uh, we, um, we work in obscurity. Um, and so to have a light shone on it is, uh, is, is a positive thing. It's uh, I, I don't want to spoil too much about the film. I want to make sure that people see it. But but it's it's absolutely remarkable to see you. And the volunteers and the staff that you work with uh, calmly and matter of factly uh, training for and then responding to drug poisonings, to overdoses on almost a daily basis. Uh, but a statistic at the end of the film struck me as most powerful, and that is in more than three decades of harm reduction across the country. And for that matter, around the world, there's no documented deaths in supervised consumption services. In other words, the work is working uh, yet it does not remain uh, a main or major approach when it comes to governments across this country right now. It's an issue that's still, I think, demanding uh, to be respected when it comes to how governments and public health bodies are approaching this opioid crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Stigma is strong. And uh, that is one, that's one of the battles. It, it's it's interesting to be speaking to people outside of the community of the downtown east side because in some ways the like it, it, it isn't a, a mystery to us how to react how to respond how to care and what's important and and it becomes normalized you mentioned the calmness and uh that 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 happens and it's really um an, an expectation in this community that people are prepared to respond, that people, that people care, that people advocate, that, that people are, have been impacted by it. But I got to admit, it's a little bit shocking um, to have to translate that a little bit outside of, of this, this experience. I also live in the neighborhood and have for a number of years for, you know, 15 plus years and raised my family here as well. 
I want to welcome Trey Agnew to the conversation. Uh, Trey is currently the general manager of the Overdose Prevention Society. And Trey, um, I, I might be guilty of, of taking a word from you. And, and that's not very real of me in a show called Real Talk, because the bio that you gave us describes you in your words as a former junkie and thief by trade. And I've been told yep. many I've been told many times that that the word junkie is certainly not preferred. As a matter of fact, it's often used as a slur or, or word that brings with it almost sort of heavy judgment. But you invoke that word in describing yourself. Can you take us into the stigma and your personal experience? I don't know. I, I can say that word because I am one. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just driving my kid to school right now. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I think of it more of a, as a term of endearment. I mean, I guess there's a lot of PC stuff going around these days. And, uh, you know, I'm going to sound like a jerk, but I mean, like, I just I can't handle everyone being so sensitive all the time. Right. And uh, I've never written any kind of professional bio for myself. So when I was asked to do that, you know, you can see I take myself really seriously. Right. Like. I have no uh, no professional background or anything. I, I'm, a, I'm a high school dropout. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is, is that um, the years that I spent on the street um, doing criminal activity to pay for my, uh, my drug addiction was a school within itself. And um, I've been on committees, uh, you know, across Canada sharing my experience as as a drug user and uh and the j word as a junkie um and you know like a lot of these people on committees are scientists they're uh, people with like uh, CSIS and um the canadian military top dogs in police organizations uh ambulance places and like uh fire committees and, you know like i had a lot of feelings like you know these people have actual educations and like uh, they own homes and like I was, there was a lot of comparing, but the reality is that I had like imposter complex or imposter syndrome and that, you know, my, uh, my education on the street is just as good as a Harvard as a education for some, cause these people never understand what it's like to be um, a drug user and have to find means to provide, uh, provide, uh, money for yourself to get uh to get drugs and you know the really great thing about ops is that it's a safe employment opportunity right like it ops didn't exist when i was um when i was a drug user uh i had to uh you know do things that i didn't really necessarily want to do to get money for drugs but today uh you know places like ops and peer employment we create safe opportunities for drug users. Um, so it's a really good thing, right? Have a good day at school. This is this this feels like the most real real talk ever. Like Trey is talking. You're, you're, this is not lost on me. You're talking about 
you know, can't arguably Canada's biggest health crisis. I hate to try to compare COVID-19 and, and, and the opioid crisis because it doesn't make sense to do so. We need to have the bandwidth to address both. But you're talking about that. So matter of factly and dropping your kid off school. Did you ever think like Trey when and by the way, we should mention, you know, you talk about your high school dropout and, and you have this imposter syndrome. Um, and we'll talk to Colin about the, the actual aesthetic and putting the film together in just a second. But Trey, you're a brilliant artist and a lot of your work is featured on Vancouver's downtown east side in these these powerful murals that say so much and you have an incredible talent there did you ever think that that when you were in you know let's say 5 10 15 years ago that you'd ever be in a position as the general manager of a harm reduction service dropping your kid off school at school i mean how far away was that sort of a reality from you back in the day no i i never thought that would ever happen i mean the reality of that is still kind of lost on me um that like you know I, i'm i'm really I don't, I don't know i don't know how it happens but it's uh it's great Colin, this uh from your perspective as a storyteller uh i have to say like with regards to the the composition of the film and how it, it it's stunningly shot um, there are the, the you use silence in a way that not a lot of filmmakers can. I mean, it's just so incredibly powerful. I was I was literally sitting up on the edge of my seat the entire time. This wasn't like a layback and lounge type of watch. This was an engaged watch for me. What was it that put in particular ops, uh, the overdose prevention society on your on your radar? And when did you know that you were onto something powerful, as powerful as it is? Well, well, for me, I've also worked in the in the neighborhood for many years, and uh, when I moved to New York in 2016, is when the records were kind of going off the charts in the downtown east side. And so I was kind of watching from a distance as lots of folks that you know I used to work with, like Ronnie, and uh, you know people I cared about were passing away or losing loved ones. So um, the community, you know has has meant a lot to me and i really wanted to to get back and and try and capture what was going on and and when i got back ops is kind of fully running but it was like the first place in uh in this crisis that said you know what we're not going to sit around and wait we're going to do do whatever we can here and uh kind of in the face of what was uh government in action and people not really knowing how to handle this um in the face of that just opened up this site and and at that time they were unsanctioned and you know technically illegal so it was a, a courageous act by the community so that was like the main reason is kind of this is where all these uh responses i mean insight was you know long established but when insight uh, was trying to get shut down by stephen harper in the supreme court uh they they beat the 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 government of canada uh to win in the supreme court which was great but along with that came a bunch of regulations that that made it virtually impossible to legally open another site in Canada. And so it was a real act of bravery, which was uh, which led the charge to open a, a bunch of these sites here in Vancouver and across Canada. Yeah. Um, and and the main thing also was that I, you know, I'd worked with Ronnie at Insight before I'd known Sarah for years. I hadn't met Trey before, but knew lots of the participants there as well and the staff. So I felt like they they knew who I was. Um, there was a level of trust there that's that's needed to to film in a place like this. They knew that I was going to put um, you know the the people there first and not try and get in the way of any services. And uh, 
And yeah, and it's also a, a unique space. You know, it was um, <clears throat> it's a real community vibe in there. And and it, have, having worked in the neighborhood, it's definitely something I just didn't didn't want to focus on. You know, the, the tragedy of it, which is horrific, but also wanted to capture you know the the beautiful humanity that I knew existed. And uh, I felt like Ops really uh, captured that for me, and and it was a real reflection of the community as a whole. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, the beautiful humanity. What a way to put it! You you connect with the the people in this film, um, and uh, I mean even in the in the press kit for the film, you, you know, describe it as a group of misfits, artists, and drug users operating a renegade safe injection site in the downtown east side. An intimate portrait of a community fighting to save lives and keep hope alive, which I think is a, is a beautiful way to put it. Uh, Ronnie, this was uh, an opportunity for you, I, I think, through the film, and you really do open up about it to talk about the the emotional impact or the heaviness. Uh, I can't remember your exact words in the film, but in, in one of your comments, you say that you've, you've sort of volunteered staff and volunteers here have sort of signed up uh, to go to it to a tough place. You've almost signed up to carry or to help shoulder people's loads and, and ultimately by the end of this documentary you look and you wonder how sustainable this is with regards to the people that are volunteering their time i mean how do you make your way through a day or a week where literally people's lives are, are hanging in the balance on an almost daily basis lives are literally literally being saved every single day i appreciate the uh, the question i appreciate you pointing that out uh, because uh, it is, we do sign up, we do willingly uh, step into the space to um, because it's meaningful and because it's important and because it's necessary. But that doesn't mean that it's not difficult and demanding and that it's very costly on the people who show up. And burnout is real. And and um, uh, low um, staff turnover is real. Um, and and so uh, I've and and I would say I've experienced that myself. I've, I've very much, um, um, you know, experienced burnout and had to take time uh, away or or work in short increments. You know, it's a real thing. It's uh, it, it's hard to, I guess, try to imagine where this goes. Um, the the numbers are up year over year with regards to human beings whose lives are lost as a result of drug poisoning or overdose. I know that the the film goes a long way. Again, I, I don't want to sort of say too much. I want people to make sure they check it out. But there's a lot of talk about safe supply. And uh, Trey, do you I mean, when it comes to, you know, if you were able to write a solution up here, I would imagine we talk about legislation and funding and health resources um, and safe supply, what would be your most important point? What would you like the average Canadian, what would you like elected officials to be focusing on as we address this opioid crisis? Um, you know, I just always just requote re uh, Ops Executive Director Sarah Blythe um, and Ops Founder. You know, we need lots of different options for lots of different people. There's no one clear uh one size fits all solution safe supply is um one of the options that could help a lot of people for those uh drug users who maybe aren't ready uh to stop or maybe don't want to stop um at least they would getting some be getting some sort 
I think we might have lost Trey. So let me put the same question in front of Colin. Uh, Colin, you know, there's there's obviously I know the, the reality here that people might not know as well is that Ops is uh, just right now opening a new site. There's there's a sort of a backstory here that they've they've been bumped around and moved a little bit. And Ronnie can maybe comment on that, too. But I'm curious to know for your take as someone who's immersed himself in this story, has told the story and understands what's happening here. You pay attention to developments, to political action and all that kind of stuff. Um, what do you think? I mean, with regards to get a more permanent spot for this, with regards to try to turn this tide, with regards to address in meaningful fashion this opioid crisis across Canada, so long as a policy and adequate safe supply availability isn't changing for now, what do you think is the short term answer and what would you like to see longer term? Yeah, I think like I agree with Trey is that like we're in a new world now. You know, it was hard enough for uh you know, for people to go into abstinence-based uh, recovery uh, before, and now we're in fentanyl, which is that much harder. And I think if you look at a place like Switzerland that really, um, after they opened their site in the 80s, really kind of leaned into harm reduction and all these sorts of things and offered a safe supply and opiate-assisted therapy, and, um, you know, they give away free uh, regulated clean heroin, fentanyl never had a market to enter there, you know, so we don't see the catastrophe that we have here where things move a lot slower. And I think, you know, there's lots of organizations that are able to provide safe supplies and, and there's evidence behind it that shows it's working. And I think that it's better if we as a society can educate ourselves and learn more about this, that it isn't just about enabling drug users and it isn't about just giving people drugs that this is, uh, you know, science and evidence based approaches that are working. And the more we as a public uh, familiarize ourselves with this and understand and, and, and see hopefully what movies like this show is that it's not as simple. Drugs are bad and and you shouldn't do them. It's not that simple. And uh, we need to open our minds and think outside the box. And uh, the more that we can do that, the more that the decision makers and, you know, governments are able to 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 act with hopefully the same mobilization that they did we did with covid you know yeah yeah hearing you talk about that and ronnie i want to ask you about this we'll get back to trey as soon as we can because i want to give him an opportunity to finish his thought as soon as we get his signal back but but ronnie you know i mean you've seen the the rhetoric from politicians and and certainly uh and, and like colin was just saying you know a lot of people view these as as sort of like free drugs or i see people describe it as drug dens and like oh is this how we're going to address this crisis is just by giving people free drugs giving people illegal drugs it, it it's hard and I don't know if there's perhaps it means expending too much political capital. I don't know what it is. Um, a lot of people from perhaps the safety of their own experience or from their own privilege have a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea of safe supply and how it can actually be an effective tool in actually saving lives and actually addressing this crisis for, for the average Canadian, not somebody immersed in harm reduction, not somebody that has lived experience like you do and many others in this film. But what's the argument? for it for safe supply like what would you say to the average person this is why we need to do it this is the evidence that it'll work uh well i think uh, we have to look at at the evidence that we do have and the and the evidence and the data that we do have is prohibition and it has not worked it distinctly has not worked and we need to accept that and admit it and and stare that straight in the face that what we've done doesn't work and so then uh, what are we doing or what can we do when um, and, and part of the limitation of prohibition is that we don't we don't understand addiction very well. We don't understand mental health all that well. 
And so um, prohibition has been a major contributor to that limitation. And as, as people access these services, which are increasingly normalized in the downtown east side, uh, we begin to understand the, the, the role that substances such as opioids or stimulants play in, in people's mental health for th that assists their mental health. And we need to begin to normalize understanding it as a uh, as a as as a medical experience um, primarily. You know, I don't want to limit that. People use substances every day to make themselves feel different. Uh, coffee, sugar, all of those things make people feel different. And so, you know, we. There, there. We we do have to acknowledge the role that these substances play in in especially in the realm of trauma, and and that's both physical trauma and psychological trauma, and supporting people through their experiences of that. The, the film does an amazing job, and and Colin, I uh, I'll, I'll uh, leave it vague uh, because I think people need to see it for themselves. But the impact of hearing people's personal stories as they're at ops as they're talking to the volunteers and the staffers and opening up and sharing their stories and oftentimes sharing their trauma, it is so enlightening as a viewer, as an audience member, to understand what has drawn so many people to that space. Trey, we've got you back, and while we still have a signal, I want to get back to you to give you a chance to finish your thought. You were quoting Sarah. You were talking about safe supply. You were talking about political policy, political will, and how we can address this crisis in meaningful fashion. Yeah, um... There, lots to be, there needs to be lots of different options for lots of different people. If I could see anything, it would be safe supply, uh, more drug testing available. So in Vancouver, we have a spectrometer, which can uh, test the drugs. I'd like to see that regular, um, like a spot, 24 hours where someone could get drug testing. And uh, lastly, detox on demand. <clears throat> One of the hardest things I see um, working with someone on a street level is when they say, hey, you know what? Uh, they have a moment uh, where they talk to me and they say, Trey, I'm, I'm feeling done. Like, I I, I want to quit. Um, I'm thinking about detox. And then uh, I wish there was some way that I could get them fast-tracked into detox. The reality is in Vancouver, when someone wants to do detox access, it's uh, up to a two-week wait before they can get in. And that window of making that decision is like this big. It's like so small. By the time they have their detox access, they've changed their mind. So unfortunately, the reality of it is I have to uh, teach people how to lie and manipulate the system where if they really want detox on demand, uh, they have to go to an emergency department, lie, get sectioned under the Mental Health Act, use specific language. Um, I have a plan. Um, this is how I'm going to do it. Make up some lie about how they're going to go jump off the Lionsgate Bridge or something. Then they'll get sectioned um, into a mental health unit, either in St. Paul's or VGH. And then from there, they have to advocate for themselves to get transferred to a detox facility or second stage treatment facility. That's the reality of it. So um, I'd like to see um, some sort of detox on demand available uh, within Metro Vancouver so that I don't have to tell people to lie to the system to get what they want when they need it. It's powerful stuff. Colin, ultimately, what do you hope? I mean, the, the film, the world premiere tonight, 
uh, on the West Coast, uh, Coast at uh, Doxa. Congratulations. Obviously, a huge night for you and everybody involved. And then I know on Friday when this screens at uh, Northwest Fest, uh, you'll have a captive audience as well. Ultimately, uh, aside from just a, a majorly eye-opening experience, I mean, this is the type of film that you walk with. It's impossible for this to not impact your perspective. But ultimately, what do you hope that the, that the viewer takes from this? Yeah, firstly, I appreciate, uh, you know, all the kind words about it. And I think you just you just said it for me is just impacting people's perspective. I'm obviously, you know, a strong proponent of this sort of work, but I really appreciate that it's new to a lot of people. And so this is an observational you know, documentary. I didn't want to have interviews and I didn't want to I wanted to kind of give a, a chance for an audience to, to really feel what it's like on these front lines and uh, and think about things for themselves. It doesn't try uh and explain anything. It just kind of walks uh, people through uh, what it's like. And it, obviously, um, you can only capture so much, but I think it, it really shows the the devastation on this community and also the incredible like response. And 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 for me, I wanted to just show you know these are these are a lot of active drug users that are doing more for their community than I think most of us are, and uh, are some incredible humans that I think we need to acknowledge. And I hope that shifts, you know, the way we view this issue and drug users and drug use, and that it's a, a complicated, complicated stuff that we need to really, I think, expand our, our horizons about and, and, and what we think about this stuff. That's Colin Askey, who uh, you basically wrote, directed, produced, edited. I mean, I think you did it all in this film, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, right? It's just an absolutely marvelous piece of work. It, it's heartbreaking. Um, it is heart filling uh, and it's an absolute must watch. I implore you to watch this. We've been talking to uh, Trey Helton as well and Ronnie Grigg. Uh, Ronnie, my brother, um, I don't know if you know or not, uh, Kyle works down at Insight and I texted him about one in the morning and I said, I'm going to be talking to Ronnie tomorrow. And uh, he said, it makes my heart surge to know that you're connecting with him. I've learned a lot from him work philosophy wise. And uh, and I hope that that means as much to you as it did to me to know that you've made such an impact on his life. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, Kyle's Kyle's a good friend and a, and a, a great caregiver in this community. Yeah, so I appreciate the words very much. You can check out more about what Ronnie's doing at Zero Block Society. And of course, thanks to the three of you. Uh, just a phenomenal conversation. And we're so grateful for your perspectives on this. Uh, mad love and much respect to all of you and everybody that does the good work. You can check out Love in the Time of Fentanyl coming up on Friday at Northwest Fest. It's Canada's longest-running documentary film festival. Real Talk is proud to partner with Northwest Fest this year, and you can get your tickets. Check out availability at northwestfest.ca, including on Friday, that's May 13th, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, a timely look at the critical importance of safe injection sites and the controversy surrounding them. Thanks, gentlemen. Really appreciate it. Johnny this is the type of thing like uh, watch that movie. And then I tried to I just laid there in the dark last night. I watched it right before I went to bed and I just laid there and you try to like I, I, I the one thing that occurred to me is I said I felt like I was able like the filmmaker Colin takes you in and at a respectful but close just like I mean, yeah. like, you're right in there mm-hmm. um, getting to know these people, hearing their stories. People are sharing, you know, some people saying I never thought I'd be here. Yeah. Other people are saying, I'm still here. I'm still alive because of this place. Yeah. And um, I, I think here in Edmonton, maybe we're a little sheltered from it because it's all in one area. Mm. Uh, I lived in Vancouver for seven years and it's just, it's, 
it's horrible. It's sad to see what's going on. And I think Trey said it best, like two weeks to get a detox when you're like, you know, you've got the window is like making that decision is is way less than an hour. But if somebody you, says, you I'm open to doing help. it right now. You, you got to be able yeah. to do it right now, it's right? It's ridiculous. That has to be shrunken a whole lot. And we, we have a friend who struggling with addiction to methamphetamines right now who mm. is just She's in and out. Like, we don't know where she is right now, and she pops up every couple months. But when she pops up, she wants help, and she can't get it fast enough. And so there she goes. She disappears again. And then, you know, that's just how it is. One day, maybe we won't see her again, right? And she, But, like, people have these instances where they want help, and they need help, and it needs to be provided super quick. Yeah, I'm seeing these, you know, comments on our chat, people talking about, you know, you know, folks that have, you know, had a serious injury, for example. They might go to the hospital, they get on Oxy, or they get on certain painkillers, and it it opens a door for them. They start self-medicating. Sure. A lot of people have, you know, and, and you know, the more we understand about this opioid crisis, we understand that it's impacting people from every walk of life. Everybody. In all communities across the country. Yeah. And, of course, to a certain degree, Vancouver, Vancouver's downtown east side sees a disproportionate number of drug poisonings because mm-hmm. of the population down there. There's a lot of people there. There are resources there. So, so people wind up there. Perhaps the climate's a little more forgiving. So perhaps people yeah. from across Canada are more drawn to be in Vancouver. That doesn't mean it's not an issue in other cities. It doesn't it's mean it's not an issue in the suburbs. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's not an issue with people that make more or less than a hundred grand a year. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't at all. It's not, it's just homeless people dropouts. Like Trey was saying, people out of work like this girl we know had a good future ahead of her and made some mistakes and got sucked in and yeah it's just horrible i'm so grateful for an audience by the way that does heavy lifting with us that wants to have these conversations i look at the lineup for today we're talking about abortion and incredible safe comments today right? on the line especially about this last conversation we could have had a whole show on this I yeah think. yeah i almost felt like i cut the conversation off early and we kept him for more than a half hour we and should I have trey in studio that would be amazing <laughs> yeah. i mean that guy just i love he's like, have a great day at school and then he yeah. goes back to talking about the opioid crisis that's real life yeah. this is real life Sponsors make these conversations happen, including the amazing teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. We sure appreciate their partnership in keeping real talk happening every single weekday morning. They can help you get into your dream car or your dream vehicle right now. You can get approved on their website. You can link to those under the Sponsors tab on ours, ryanjesperson.com. Of course, you can also just go see them in person. St. Albert Dodge, I mean, it's not a brand new, it's virtually a brand new dealership, maybe a year old now. Absolutely beautiful in there. Lots of room to check out their inventory. And of course, Sherwood Dodge as well. You know where that is. Uh, they've got you covered on the Ram 1500, the Jeep Grand Wagoneer, and so much more at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Our friends at Infinity Healthcare know that the last thing you want to be worrying about is your loved one's home care. You want to have the confidence that it's consistent, that it's respectful, that it's a perfect fit. They offer a unique and personalized combination of premier care and community-based services. It's easy to get in touch with them on their website, infinity-8.ca. Plus, on the website, you can browse their career opportunities. Are you a licensed practical nurse? A customer care navigator, maybe a healthcare aide. They're also hiring Infinity Healthcare ambassadors. You can work with families across the province to find a perfect fit for your loved one or their loved one's home care through Infinity Healthcare. If you happen to be lucky enough to be heading out of town, we recommend that you leave your car at Jet Set Airport Parking. If you're heading out of EIA, that's Edmonton's International Airport, you can save money by booking online 
Today, it's $7 a day to park your car at the airport for travel all the way through till 2022. All the way through till the end of 2022. Book it now. It gives you seven months or so in advance. Make sure you give yourself 24 hours. The promo code REALTALK gets you $7 a day parking at jetsetparking.com. Local environmental, you know, constantly growing its footprint. It seems like every couple of weeks on their Instagram or their Twitter account, they're introducing themselves to a new community like White Court. I saw they're just hiring in White Court. That's just one example. If you want to keep it local with a family owned business that's concerned for your business's bottom line, partnership, most important to them in recycling, water hauling, fencing, portable toilets, we recommend local environmental.com. CA. And of course, our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park insist that you check out their summer blizzard menu, these blizzard <laughs> treats for a limited time. I can't keep talking about this dirt pie blizzard treat without taking our little guy to go see it. The one with the gummy worms and the chocolate yeah. dirt. It's the most fun one, probably. You say blizzard, you just smile. You just smile. <laughs> I like it. They still do the thing, hey, back, you know, like remember back in the day, they turn it upside, upside down, down before they give it to you. And I've, I've always appreciated that. I think that takes guts. If the temperature was off just by five degrees. I wonder it if like, it's ever happened. I would just dump it right on. But that's their confidence. That's the blizzard promise, baby, is that it's going to be perfect every time, including that cotton candy blizzard treat, which keeps catching my eye, too. These are the Dairy Queens in Sherwood Park at Baseline Road, plus in Northwest Edmonton at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, and Westmount. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's show. Uh, before we get to uh, yeah. the leading edge here, I wanted to give everybody a heads up. H- have you seen this this new podcast that's like top 10 in all the science podcast listings and there's an Alberta connection to it? This is pretty cool. They're, they're getting into the relationship between humans and the other animals on the planet. Nice. You know the one I'm talking about? And so this is uh, this is a, a podcast, and you can show us the logo here, Johnny, if you want. We're going to talk to two of the hosts of this one, and this is like you, you take a look at the history of, of humans and animals and the relationship on the planet, and, and, and for example, one of the recent ones I listened to, I was listening to their, their archive yesterday, mm-hmm. like why we should actually celebrate insects, why insects are so important. This is a big one that people ask me. They're like, oh, well, you don't eat meat. You know, you're stepping on ants every day and stuff. <laughs> like that people give you I that think, i think that's just the 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 chain of command in the universe is that you know you know bigger things wipe out smaller things i don't think you can stop that but the other day me and my wife were driving we, we see a ladybug on the car my wife is obsessed with ladybugs it's ladybug season right now they all come out in the spring and early summer and uh, you know we had to stop and and you know take it off and put it in the grass but i understand you can't do that with everything i like, love it you know? we've got to get you to co-interview the co-host of anthropomania <laughs> Anthropomania, the co-hosts are going to join us tomorrow because there are. I love it. I respect that. Like there's something. Ladybugs to me are one of the most underrated animals on planet Earth. They're actually super cool. Yeah. Well, like with spiders, do you kill spiders? Because you know it's a big bad luck thing. Like it'll rain. You'll have you'll have spiders are good, right? But for the most part, yeah. But my wife's deathly afraid of them. So I'm like, how are how are you this plant based? You know. All oh. all living creatures Amen. love her, and then you're, you're freaked out and run away from spiders. life's life's complicated, <laughs> and that's the beautiful part of it yeah. is that you just got to find what works for you and go with it. So, Anthropomania, uh, two of the hosts are going to join us tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. That's going to be a fun one. We always want to bring you, yeah, we say on Real Talk news, politics, and pop culture, and so we'll get into the stuff that that's uh, you know grinding people's gears or that politicians are focusing on or public messaging around this or or a crisis there. 
But then every once in a while, we want to have a conversation that just everybody can just chill out, relax, enjoy, uh. not think too hard. Right. We ask you to do heavy lifting on days like today, and then we balance it out with some fun stuff. So that's coming up every Tuesday. Also, thanks to our friends at Leading Edge Physio. We take an opportunity to highlight an organization or group or a person, maybe an invention that's changing life for people. We call it the leading edge. And in the spotlight today, it's the team at Priority Printing. Yeah, that's right. This business has been open since 1986, and they've been proudly announcing they can print your logo on pretty much anything. So so why are they featured in the leading edge today? Well, one of the reasons is their support for community. Priority Printing showcases local artists of the month in their desk calendars, and as well as endless events with charities in the community, like annual fundraisers, for example, for SCARS, that second chance animal rescue providing and donating promotional materials for events as well has been the reason they've connected with community so strongly over the past coming up on 40 years. Now, of course, they've got cutting edge technology and their design systems set them apart. They've earned a reputation for constantly adapting and changing in their industry. And perhaps most notably today, They've been a sponsor of Leading Edge's Run Wild Race for 11 years, doing all the printage, all the signing, uh, the signage and printing, the brochures, everything that's sent home with kids at school, even the banners at the finish line on race day. They run their employees in those races. They keep the water station going. And Robin Chapelsky, who steers that team there, a longtime run club attendee, Uh, put on by Leading Edge to train for Run Wild. So Priority Printing and their team, basically a shining example of what it means to be a leader in your industry and what it means to truly give back to community. Today, we celebrate Priority Printing in The Leading Edge, presented by Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. Now, also coming up on tomorrow's show, we mentioned the Anthropomania podcast team, the duo, and I'm really looking forward to that. But it's also this week an anniversary of a major Western Canadian wildfire. We're going to talk to civic, municipal, indigenous leadership about what they've learned and how their community is rebuilding after the Chuck Egg Blaze. Plus, an inside view by way of a photographer, Leah Hennel, into the hospitals through the pandemic. A powerful new book will take you there. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. General Manager Katie Cook Chivers. Website Design Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.